Father, again, thank you for the opportunity to come together to review these details of history. Help us to know how to hit the highlights in a way that makes sense, pulls the threads together, and actually leads us to study more in depth, more about the story, more about how you have been leading your teachings and what your intent is. And help us to enter more into an understanding of why we're still here. This is we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're back in 1844 still. And the third angel's message has begun to sound. Right after the disappointment, we have another event that we highlight here. And that is Ellen Harmon. At this point, she's 17 years old. And she has her first public vision. Okay, And I like to tie that together um, with the midnight cry, because we already mentioned in that vision, she saw a bright light at the beginning of a path. It's that journey metaphor um, that the word waymarks coming from, which was another synonym for the landmarks. And she is given that vision to encourage the Advent people that they're on a journey to heaven, right, to the, to the city. Uh, they thought they were going to get there because they thought Jesus was going to come and they were at the end of the journey. But it's like there's a journey ahead still and Jesus is guiding you. And what enabled them to see Jesus? It was that light behind them. Right? And when they denied the light that was behind them, what happened? For then the light went out and then they couldn't see the path they couldn't see Jesus, and what did they do? They fell off the path into the world. Well, another metaphor, just a symbolic way of saying, if you don't acknowledge the light God has given in the past, how are you going to walk into the future with more and more and more light, right? You're going to lose sight of that, and you're going you're to lose the, the journey at some point. How many people know people that have lost that journey, right? They're no longer with us. They, they didn't appreciate the past. They didn't walk in that light and looked for more light that's coming. So that's one thing I would highlight from that vision. The other thing would be, let's don't forget, we're dealing with these two principles. And this one, these are not impersonal things. Don't depersonalize God's teachings. It's, it is intensely personal, not just you and I are persons. But the one who originated it is a personal God. He's just not an idea. And unless you learn that and walk with him, have a relationship with him, um, the devil is, is excellent at depersonalizing things. And so the truth is actually embodied in a person. It's all about him, right? That's why he says, I am the truth. So this vision that Ellen Harmon gets as a teenage girl, is it something that she's codging up in her own mind? Is she under the influence of, you know, as people tend to say, some neurologic disorder, or worse than that, some supernatural evil power? If not, where is it coming from? What does the Bible call the... Spirit of prophecy. Of it is the testimony of Jesus. When Jesus came to his disciples in Luke 24, we talked about this to begin with. 
What turned these men around, the survivors, from being confused and in hiding to becoming deeply, much more deeply converted, unified, and bold? It was the testimony of Jesus, united with Scripture. Don't forget that. That's what he did. He gave him a Bible study. He just didn't say, here I am. I'm alive. Believe in me. He took them back to all the spirit of prophecy teachings from the Old Testament. He showed the consistency of what he had been giving the prophets in the Old Testament through that spirit of prophecy. And he, he basically said it's being fulfilled. But it's all about me. It's concerning me. And so when Ellen Harmon is getting messages, is it Ellen Harmon? Or is it the testimony of Jesus? Is he, is he coming not in person but through a messenger? And is he helping us to understand Scripture? How then in everything it's, it's concerning Jesus. And so I would, I would submit to you as we look through this history, you're going to find that a lot of our history details is built on things that she wrote. Not because she's the only one that lived then or wrote about it, but because what she wrote is a unique perspective on our history. And it's something that she herself as a human being could not have been able to do. Look at the testimony of those who were there alive when she was alive, who examined her, not just her physical demonstration in having visions, but tested her in terms of the biblical accuracy, the fruits of that, and all of that. And you'll see, I think of M.L. Andreessen's testimony. He saw something he said that was humanly impossible. He said, this is a gift from God. And we neglect God's gifts at our own peril. And so we're going we're gonna to lean a lot on what Jesus had to say about our history because he's speaking through a messenger. And God help us to be willing to grasp the significance of that. When we quote Paul, we're not really quoting Paul. We're quoting the the spirit that was speaking through Paul. Paul was the the penman, right? He was putting it into his own words, but God was giving him the ideas. And Ellen White doing the same thing. She's not a canonical messenger. Her her writings do not become part of Scripture. But there's a lot of other non-canonical prophets in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Their, their works were not in the Bible, but yet they were messengers of God. So let's not, not um, miss an understanding of that. So what happened there in, in the, I put it in 44, but actually it's the next five years basically. Very rapidly, out of the understanding of the third angel's message, there were a whole series of landmarks that became clear to these people as they studied. We, and this is based on a statement I've given you, um, hopefully the reference. The reference actually to this is back, um, I believe it's on page three. Um, the landmarks are succinctly outlined in the LNG White 18 materials, page 518. That's a paragraph on page 3. So if you actually want to know where these came, came from. Second coming, the cleansing of the sanctuary. In other words, this prophecy in Daniel 8, um, uh, 
when it said the sanctuary would be cleansed, what is that really all about? So they began to understand the sanctuary services and the symbolism of that and what the cleansing was all about. She said transpiring in heaven, but having decided relation to God's people on earth. They thought it was just on earth. And uh, no, they realized it was taking place in heaven, but it has a decided relation to God's people on earth. With this, all three messages together is considered, she's listed them as a landmark, three angels' messages. Um, by the way, the messages are not simply in historical sequence that we see. These are the order in which they came, but they are cumulative. Uh, they start as a solo, then there's a duet, and then there's a trio, and then there's a quartet. In other words, they join each other, and they continue to sound. The first ones continue to sound as they continue. Uh, the third angel's message highlights two specific things that became very important and are still very important. Last verse of the third angel's message, those that endure, the implication is they endure the fall of Babylon. They keep two things. What? Faith in Jesus and the commandments of God. Commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So they began to un look at that, uh, but of these two, which one did they seem to emphasize? Okay, so this one, I put in here, they neglected this one. Not that they denied it or totally ignored it, but there was a, there was a neglect, and that will come out a little bit later in the history. Um, there was one of these commandments in particular that they, they became aware of the importance of, which was the fourth commandment. Okay, and that obviously ties back to first angel's message, worship him who made, to begin to realize the importance of that. Um, and then one more, the non-immortality of the wicked. We mentioned uh, George Storrs in his writings. And this is the way she described it, because it just basically says the wicked aren't going to live forever. God is not going to perpetuate sin, immortalize sin. So they, uh, they begin to understand the significance of that. And that's not insignificant, because at the same time the Advent movement was rising up, there were several other parallel movements. I don't highlight them here although they're alluded to later on in, in another, another historical point. Um, I can think of three major movements that began, maybe four, in the world parallel to the Advent movement. Darwinism, come, rising in the 1840s. Uh, look at the history. It's amazing parallels. Mormonism, a few miles from where higher medicine was living, was where Joseph Smith supposedly found the gold plates. Spiritualism, another few miles away, the other direction, the Fox sisters were li li living. And the plaque there says, the birthplace of modern spiritualism. And Christian scientism. Okay. Those are at least four that come to mind. There's probably more. This is very, very significant. And that is understanding how God has created us and the nature of man, as we say. Um, so... Christian Scientism, Mary Baker Eddy in Christian Science. Um, so those are the the landmarks. Each of them 
we could spend hours on them. But six individuals that don't continue in this process in the 1840s of, of moving in this understanding, I highlight, I highlight their names, William Miller, Josiah Litch, Joshua Heim, Samuel Snow, George Storrs, and O.R.L. Crozier. Um, again, we mentioned earlier, God can use people and later on can't use them anymore because of their unbelief, their limitations. Um, so don't, don't think that the only people God has used is those that, that were successful all the way to the end. Um, there's books in the Bible about people who made miserable failures. Um, I think the fact that they're in the Bible means they recovered. And, um, but again, holding that against them, we would take some books out of the Bible, perhaps. Jane Andrews, a couple of his books we've published, particularly on the Sabbath truth. He highlights some of those. I've mentioned that in the outline. Miller in 47 had a very important dream. Um, I'm, I wondered sort of in the back of my mind for years, why did Ellen White put, put in the book Early Writings a dream that someone else dreamed? It's the only thing in the book Early, early Writings that she didn't write. Or it, was, it was Miller's dream. And it, his, when I began to understand it, I, I realized I understood the 1840s much better than I had. Um, and I, there's some things on my personal website. I've given you a link to that. James White... Miller died two years later in 49. And the year after that, James White published Miller's dream and gave the interpretation of his dream. And that's where it really jumped out at me, what was taking place. And that is, there was a lot of this going on in the 1840s, even after the disappointment, a lot of it going on. But those that were discovering these landmark truths, the publications eventually blacklisted them. They would no longer publish any letters or articles from these people. And that's tied up with the end of William Miller's life. God gave him the dream, by the way, to encourage Miller, You've not, your life has not been a disaster and a mistake. You did what I wanted you to do. And I'm going to have to take over now and, and finish it. <laughs> and uh, gave Miller encouragement at the end of his life. But James White comments in, in interpreting the dream, these publications had blacklisted the Sabbath-keeping Adventists' writings and the visions of Ellen Harmon. And so Ellen White had a, had a vision. We're on page top of page five now. She had a vision. James, start your own publication. So that begins the public publishing work of the Sabbath-keeping Adventists. They began their work in the next year. Okay, a lot of Bible conferences were hammering out these truths during those years. We highlighted those. James White's first publication in 49, The Present Truth. That's speaking particularly Third Angel's message, right? That's the present truth. And um, Miller dies that year. Mention that. Well, if you're starting your own publishing work, who do you need to help? 1851, God sends a newspaper publisher joins the third angel's message, J.H. Wagoner. He was a publisher, an author. He knew how to write. Um, read some of the things that, that he's written. Very excellent writer. Uh, another young man at the time, 18, um, 1851, Cottrell, R.F. Cottrell. They were Seventh-day Baptists. They were not accepting the Millerite message because there was no Sabbath keepers tied to it. But now, in the aftermath of the disappointment, there are Sabbath-keeping Adventists, and they joined the movement. 
in 51. He becomes a writer for James White's review. James White began in 1850 a second periodical called the Advent Review. That's reviewing what? The Advent. Was God in this movement or not? There's people beginning to question the whole thing. There were three basic responses to the disappointment. Number one, let's start picking new dates. Number two, the date was right. Let's figure out what actually happened. They're the ones that looked at this. Number three, this is all a deception. We're out of here. And James White's wanting them to review that evidence that God had been leading in the Millerite movement. Advent Review. Then he puts them together and he calls it the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald. Because they tied this landmark truth particularly with the third angel's message. Present truth. Uh, the Sabbath and the sanctuary. These are the two things that really define the, the group of Adventists that were moving in this direction, publishing, and beginning to spread that. 1852, five men. Stephen Pierce, he had been hammering out some of those early things uh, with them as well. Uriah Smith, a young man. He was very, very talented, a, a poet, an uh, engraver, <clears throat> an inventor. He has patents. You can see what he invented. Um, an author. Joins the publishing work with, the, with it to the end of his life, basically. We have his book, Daniel and Revelation, the last one he published before he died. He, by the way, these men often edited their work before they died, so he usually took the last edition that they edited before they died. And that's the 1897 one on Daniel Revelation. Byington, Methodist, Meth Wesleyan Methodist, he becomes, uh, he joins with the third angel's message. He ends up becoming actually our first general conference president, which about 13 years later, I mean 11 years later. Um, Emmy Cornell, fairly young man. Um, you can see there he's about 25. He um, accepts the message. He's an evangelist. He's working with the, this this uh, ministry here, holding meetings. And then Jan Andrews. He had actually been, I mean, Jan Loughborough. Loughborough um, was 12 years old at the passing of the time. At age 16, he began to preach. was impressed to go out, get a horse, and go out preaching. He was a first-day Adventist. and he, he preached for four years, and then he goes to a meeting that uh, another young fellow, three years older than he was, 23 years old, Jan Andrews, was giving a lecture on the sanctuary and the Sabbath. And Loughborough accepts it at age 20. And he becomes sort of the, he becomes the longest lived of all the pioneers. And within 30 minutes of meeting James and Ellen White, he sees Ellen White taken off into vision. And he, watch, he sees her having a vision 40 or 50 times in his life. Travels a lot with James and Ellen. And later on, he's told by Ellen White, your experience is a value. So that's why um, we have the great Second Advent movement by him. That same year, Ellen White addresses um, the need in the Advent movement because, again, these are, these are the Sabbath-keeping Adventists are beginning to build their own identity, but they have no organization yet, and they still are reaching out to what, what they would sometimes call the nominal Adventists. They're still people who claim to be Adventists, but they, they were not walking in the path of this advancing light and she began to write about the, the next message, and that is the message to Laodicea. Okay? That's the first year that she actually begins to address that. 
where is this one found? Revelation 3. So 14 to 22, something like that. Um, again, these are, when you think of the three angels in Revelation 14, these are angels that are pictured just before John sees a man sitting on a cloud with a sickle in his hand. What's that a symbol of? The harvest of the earth. So these are messages right before the second coming is pictured. This message here is all about, a, Matthew 24 and 25 are all about the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. So these are, this is an end time parable about the bridegroom going to a wedding. And tie that with Luke 12 where he says, um, Luke 12 and Luke 19, I think both talk about going to a far country to receive a kingdom and coming back. Be like, be like men with your waist girded and your lamps burning so that when the, when, the, when the Son of Man returns from the wedding, you'll be ready. See, that's a lot of imagery ties in with that. So this is an end time picture. How is this an end time picture? It's the last church. In all of the series of seven in Revelation, the churches, the seals, and the trumpets all lead into the most holy place. Watch that pattern. And so where is the seventh church leading us? Right into the most holy place. Um, again, the door to the most holy place is open. But our heart's door is... It's not. He's knocking, right? Don't miss that door picture. Uh, of what the Bible's telling us about it. Our problem, the problem is not with him, his problem is with us, right? <laughs> but he has the solution to all the problems if we let him in. Again, the bridegroom doesn't knock the door down, right? <laughs> you wouldn't want a bridegroom like that. Um, going back to the marriage metaphor, right? Okay, that was 1852. 1853, George Jamadon, you may have never heard of him. He spent all of his life in the publishing house, running the presses, right? Do we need people that run machines? Yeah, yeah, people have to do that. They're not out in the front lines preaching and sitting in the office administering. They're running the presses. So let's don't forget uh, people that devote their lives in that way. Haskell, same, same uh, year, 1853. Interesting life story with him. Um, Ends up becoming an author, administrator, evangelist. The Cross and Its Shadow, we've got that one published, his book on the sanctuary service. This really un unwrapping the connection of the sanctuary with, with Jesus, with, with the gospel that the cross reveals to us. The cross, of course, is the courtyard picture, but the blood doesn't stay in the courtyard. It goes all the way through the sanctuary, right? So Jesus, the, the power of Jesus life that's been poured out for us that poured out life the blood goes all the way through in, even into the most holy place powerful exponent of that 1856 George Butler grandfather was governor of Vermont um, was a sort of a sort of a raised by Adventist uh, Adventist parents but was a rebel right? finally gives his heart to the Lord you can see there he was in his, um, he's actually what, 20, 22? In his early 20s. Doesn't give his heart to the Lord until after he's 20. Um, 
becomes an administrator. James White that year writes about the Laodicean message and applies it specifically to the Sabbath-keeping Adventist. Giving you the reference for that. Um, again, let me just touch briefly on this. This message here is not a message for the world. It's a message for the angel of the church. Okay? In a very similar way, this is a parable about ten virgins. It's not a message for the prostitutes. It's about the virgins. You can be foolish and be left out of the wedding. So again, when you think about it, there are messages for the world, but there's also a message for the messengers. And that's how I like to highlight this one. If you don't realize that in yourself you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, you won't be able to take these messages to the world in the way God wants you to. By the way, the only thing we receive from the first Adam is what Jesus describes our condition here. Right? We need the second Adam. Um, and those of, those of you who have kids, make sure your kids learn that. The only thing you could give them <clears throat> through the human lineage, Ellen White's very clear on this letter to a man who had kids, the inheritance of children is that of sin. We receive from the first Adam nothing but guilt in the, in the condemnation of death. So we need the second Adam. But do kids, do, do babies and children have a savior? Yes, they have a savior, right? They may not, they may not even know about him yet, but they have a savior. And so that's the, that's the importance of the message here. You know, you were born of the flesh, but you must be born again born of the Spirit. And the flesh profits nothing. We don't come to grips with that as we ought. If we, if we learn that as we ought, we would put no confidence in the flesh. You know, it's, it's like, this is the message. And unless we understand that, we are going to come across at some level as better than the people we're trying to give these other messages to. And you're no better than they are. If you, if you have anything that they don't have, it's because you've been given it. And you're a steward of it. Lessons are about stewardship now in Sabbath school. And you just have to pass it on. You're one beggar telling another beggar where the bread is. Right? In that way, your, your preaching of the message will, will, will come across in a way that people feel you identify with them. You have something that is, is there. Otherwise, it's, it's, it really... And that's the reason why this message they understood was the prerequisite for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If you don't receive this, you're not prepared for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is going to be referred to a little bit later here. Okay, 1858, Ellen White has a vision about the great controversy theme. We seem like we should know all about this, but... Not till 58 that she has that, that picture of the entire overview of the story from beginning to end and begins to see. It's sort of like that Education 190 paragraph on page, uh, page 1. Um, is that on page 1? There is a, yeah, page 1. You need to understand the Bible as a whole and understand the relation of the parts. That means you can zoom out and you can see the whole thing. 
And that's, to me, the great controversy picture. And then you can zoom in. You can say, oh, sort of like Google Earth, you know. You can zoom out and see the whole thing, and then you can zoom in and see where, where things are related to each other spatially, geographically. That's the picture that we have. And she's beginning the big picture here. In this year, I found her first reference of looking back and saying, don't move a block or stir a pin. I think that the angel is actually telling her this in, in early writings. And at the same time, she's looking forward. There's another message coming. There's another message coming. And what is that going to do? The earth will be lightened with its glory. Because in Revelation, there's one more, right? 14 doesn't end it. By the way, Revelation, all these repeat things. Revelation 14, the messages that prepare for the coming, and then you see a picture of the coming. But Revelation 15 is actually before the coming. Because you're back in now the time of the plagues, where the, the judgment is being closed in the sense of probation for the earth, and there's the beginning of executive judgment. But there's a, that's not the end of the judgment process. It's just the beginning of the executive part of it. And the seventh plague appears to be the second coming again. So you have these repeats and repeats. You've got to know how to line them up in a way that makes sense. In Revelation 18 is the final picture of a message going to all the world. And there's still a chance to come out of what? Come out of Babylon. Because it's going down. That, that temporary principle, based on the lie, is going to really crash and burn finally. Page 6. These people believing this had been united by meetings and publishing. Publishing had really gone all over and really they begin to be develop an identity. And they finally realized the importance of organization. They adopt the name Advent Review Publishing Association. Who's going to own the building? Who's going to own the printing press? It shouldn't be just in one person's name. And they adopt the name Seventh-day Adventist. 61... They're going to associate themselves together as a church and take the name Seventh-day Adventist and the church is organized into a conference, Michigan to start with. 63, the general conference is formed and Byington is elected president. The very, very year that Ellen White has her first vision on health. Okay, so we've got two more ministries that are coming in here. One is organization. And that refers back to what I said at the... Earlier on, the background for that letter, letter 32, 1892, we have nothing to fear for the future except as we forget. It was all about the importance of this that she was reviewing. And then the health as well. I understand at one time they were all sick. None of the workers could work. Their health was so poor. you know. And so God, in his mercy, began to help them understand that. Um... The next thing in the timeline that I highlighted was a general conference session three years later, and they adopt a resolution saying we accept health reform. See, the vision was given three years earlier, but there was a group response, a corporate response, that they said as a, as a group, we want to go on record, we adopt this as a, as a principle. And Jesus, by the way, was a medical missionary. So they're finally catching up with what Jesus himself was doing. That same year, they adopt that resolution. What do they do? 
they opened the Western Health Reform Institute. So they're actually beginning institutions based on this. Again, if you know how to do health at home, and especially if you raise kids that, that it's second nature to them, to know what to eat and how to eat and all that, I mean, they, they have to learn that. They're not born with that information. They'll probably eat whatever you put in their mouth. But as they learn that, kids that grow up in that environment are the best ones to go out and start institutions that are based on that because they, they take the home model and put it into an institution. And God's, God's system is not institutional, it's family. The family is the institution. So we have a danger when we get so big that we lose that. Um, and all of our institutions should reproduce family as much as possible. Um, and the family should never be replaced, obviously. But that's, that's the picture that I see there. And there's an interesting statement in the reference section by J.H. Wagner about the importance of that, of that health reform. Uh, really, you can see how beautifully he writes and the importance of that. Um, 67. This woman who had given the Sabbath truth to these believers in Washington, New Hampshire back in the 40s, Rachel Preston, Seventh-day Baptist, she finally accepts the Three Angels' message. Um, but her roots with the Sabbath go way back before the Cottrells even joined the, the movement. So that, if you trace the Sabbath through that little group in Washington, New Hampshire, it goes over to Joseph Bates. He grabs it and he runs with it. He's all over the place sharing the Sabbath truth. And they go and have a meeting at Hiram Edson's place and Bates shares the Sabbath with Edson and Edson shares the sanctuary with Bates. And you can just begin to see how these truths are just coming together in those early years. Um, the next year she dies which is interesting. Just a year before she dies, she joins the, the group. <clears throat> also, the next year, 68, is the earliest statement I've been able to find about a factor that we're going to track now. June the 12th. So many would be found unready. That is the reason for the so long delay. If, if by 1868, Ellen White is talking about so long a delay, then the evidence in my mind is that we said this started when? 50s, early 50s, 52, she was writing about it in a general way. James applied it to Sabbath keeping evidence, 56. If indeed this had been grasped and the way was open for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, then that last message that's going to lighten the earth could have happened. And if you look at the 1850s, there is some good evidence that Christ could have come before the Civil War and the slaves that have been freed at the second coming. Uh, and there were movements in the world in general. There were revivals that no one can explain what was taking place, but it sounded like, El, doesn't sound like, Ellen White actually records that angels went everywhere preparing people for this final message. But again, if the messengers are not receiving the message they need, then God cannot turn up that volume because there's no way the earth is going to be lightened with anything that we as human beings can do. We will be involved with it, but it has to be empowered by the, by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It is humanly impossible um, to do it otherwise. So this is the earliest, and you'll see in the margins, I begin to put these letters D when there's references to delay, and that they just continue. Then, Next item, 72, Joseph Bates dies. Okay? 
sea captain. Advocate of the Sabbath. That very same year, we open our first school. Now think about this. The early Adventists that began to accept the landmark truths that define Seventh-day Adventists, we mentioned that in the early, it happened in the early 1850s. If you look back, uh, that was when there was just a lot of these people that were joining. There was a cluster, we had around 44, then we had another cluster in the early, basically all on page 5, the 1850s. And a lot of these were young people in their 20s, getting married, having kids. How many years have gone by now? 20 years has gone by. The kids are grown. And Christ hasn't come. What are we going to do with them? We need to be training them to become workers. And so they were led to, to do schools, 1872. So this is one more ministry that we add in here, education. Doesn't mean they were uneducated before then. They were educated at home. They were educated at public schools, which are usually small schools, you know, here and there. And But we needed to have our own schools. And that was when they began. It didn't start with elementary. It started with college. Training the, the grown young people how to become workers. Um, and elementary was not emphasized till the 1890s. Look at the story of Alma McKibben and read her autobiographical sketch. Uh, you'll begin to understand what it take, took to get elementary schools going. Um, okay, that was 72. 74, Andrews goes to Europe as a first missionary. He makes a mistake. His wife had died. Two children were early teens. Most people don't know this part of the story. Ellen White told him, you need to take a wife with you to Europe. He didn't. Uh, He ends up, his daughter ends up getting tuberculosis and dying. He picks up tuberculosis from her and he dies. And Ellen White said to him before he died, if you'd taken a wife, you'd been ten times more effective. Um, maybe he had had somebody cooking good food for him. Their immune systems would have been stronger. They wouldn't have gotten TB or they would, have, they would have survived it or whatever. I don't know the whole story. But again, the councils are intensely practical. And she said to him, but you are not a domestic man. He was a scholar. He's into his books. And sometimes those, God still has our whole life in mind, not just our strengths. He wants us to realize the whole person. And if we don't, I'm not saying everyone needs to be married. Don't, there's clear cases where that's not appropriate. Um, but that, the, that's the practical counsel that we have from God. And we have to follow it individually, be in touch with what the Holy Spirit's impressing us with. Um, Jane Andrews. Because, again, a few years later we're going to find he's, uh, he's, he's not there even 10 years. 76. Um, won't have time to get into this, but I'll ref- I referred you to a paper I've just recently posted. Uh, 1876 was the centennial of the United States. 100 years we had been a nation. Declaration of Independence. Um, the sequence of events that I stumbled onto in 76 were very significant. What God was putting together with the, with the third angel's message centered now, by the way, where geographically? Where was it? Where was the headquarters? Battle Creek, Michigan. That's where these ministries were all all centered. 
what Ellen might call the heart. If the heart is healthy, the body is healthy. Where's the devil putting his big guns at? Battle Creek. Um, read what happened in 76 clustered around Battle Creek. Um, it involved spiritualism and J.H. Wagner's book on spiritualism. 1870s was the first woman candidate for U.S. president, Victoria Woodhull. Women could not even vote. The men would have to elect her. She was a spiritualist and an advocate of free love. She wanted to abolish marriage as a form of bondage. 1870s. Nothing, these, these pioneers understood the, the trends that we're now living with a hundred plus years later. And they've matured generation after generation. They understood it and they were writing about it. Johns Hopkins University is being established in Baltimore, a university where they would study science without God in the picture. Where has science gone in the last 100 plus years? Is the creator at the center of it? No. Battle Creek was going to have a version of science with the creator at the center of it, particularly the life sciences, which is medicine. Okay? This is, these are the things that were coming together there in the 18, 1876. And I'm saying track over the next 25 years and see what happens to Battle Creek. See what happens to these ministries in Battle Creek and these themes that God's wanting to, to, to bring before the world. Because again, these are the, she says there's, these are the final messages. There's no messages more important than this. And what was the devil doing? Counterfeit, counterfeit, counterfeit. And those that were running with this, attack them, attack them, attack them. And how do you attack us? Through our weak points, right? Through that fallen human nature that we all have. And he's wanting us to Start fighting among ourselves, right? Jan Loughborough, 78, has experiences of value. I mentioned that. Okay? Three years later, James White dies. Amazing story as to the last years, the last days of his life and what he was sensing was missing. Um, the way I would summarize it, although he doesn't put it in these terms, I would say he was beginning to realize the neglect of this, the faith of Jesus. He called it the glorious subject of redemption. Um, it's particularly this. Ellen White, when she describes these two, she says the law and the gospel. The law and the gospel going hand in hand. And they're realizing that they had emphasized this till they were as dry as the hills of Gilboa, which we're going to find a little bit later uh, in the late eight, 1880s. Hiram Medson dies in 82. Jane Andrews dies in 83. Stephen Pierce dies, another one of the early men who helped them hammer out these, these landmarks. And this is the year, when you think of it, it's the 40th anniversary of the beginning of that year that Miller was pointing to, 43-44. And she writes this, if the Millerites had accepted the message of the third angel and in the power of the Holy Spirit proclaimed it. Now she's saying, if they'd, if they'd accepted this message, this is what Miller and the others did not accept. The thousands that believe the Advent message under Miller, they didn't accept this. The power of the Holy Spirit means you have accepted this. And now you're, you're ready to be, you're like the disciples after the resurrection. They had their own Laodicean message to accept, right? As many as I love are rebuke and chasten. Was he rebuking his disciples and chasing them for being full of unbelief? 
look at what he upbraided them, he says, because of their unbelief. Um, but he's, it's because of his love. And they repented. And then Pentecost could happen. So that's the background for saying this. In the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaimed it to the world, Christ would have come ere this. Unbelief, murmuring, and rebellion, worldliness, and consecration and strife have kept us in this world of sin and sorrow so many years. 1883. Less than 40 years after 44, but basically the 40th anniversary of that. She references the, the Israelites. 40 years in the wilderness? She actually says this. we're paralleling that history. 1886. This is the earliest reference I can find to this last message. Um, and Ellen White is in Europe. She went there in 85. Um, this is Revelation 18, and you could focus maybe on the first four verses or whatever. The whole thing is about the fall of Babylon, but um, the picture of the angel there. She's in Europe. She's taken to the General Conference session in Battle Creek in 86, and they were already discussing... Um, the relationship between the law and the gospel, particularly as it relates to the book of Galatians, in which law and all of that type of thing, because Galatians is all about how do you put the law and the gospel together and not end up becoming Pharisees like Paul was, right? Like the Galatians were getting pulled into. How do you relate those two? And they're, they're beginning to discuss that. She is taken in vision to Battle Creek, and she says there's not perfection on either side of the discussion. But the angel tells her, and she quotes it in quote, quote marks, the words of her guide, this message of the righteousness of Christ combined with the law, understood correctly, and presented in the power of the Spirit is the light that's going to lighten the earth with glory. So it's the first glimmerings of this coming to a surface. They're just beginning to discuss it. They were not very effective at discussing it. How good are we at processing any light? Uh, some people see it as dangerous. Some people, you know, focus totally on it and forget everything else. And um, anyway, God help us. John Byington dies in 1887. And these men are passing off the scenes. Coming down to 1888. <clears throat> Ellen White is back from, uh, from Europe. She's in, present at the 1888 General Conference session. Um... If you want to find out about the significance of this, read the Ellen G. White 888 materials. She continues writing about this for years and years and years. There's 1,800 pages of, of documents there where she's detailing, again, how Jesus thought about Minneapolis and what took place then. And there are, um, there's, a, there's actually a collection, manuscripts and memories of Minneapolis. It's in the Adventist Pioneer Library section of that, published by the White Estate, but it's out of print. But we digitized it, and it's under the APL section now of her writings. And these are letters and writings by other people connected with Minneapolis. So if you're interested in other correspondence and that type of thing. But obviously her writings about it are the primary sources of finding out how, how Christ looked at it. Justification by faith and the imputed righteousness of Christ. And I like to say it's finally joining these two. She actually says, it's in that context that she talks about how we've neglected this one. She actually says um, that if we give the third angel's message and we don't give equal emphasis to these two, 
the message is marred in our hands. So how, how can we give this in its fullness by overemphasizing one of these? It, it could be either one, but historically we had been neglecting this one. So um, that's been an area of particular interest to me is to try to probe this. What is this faith of Jesus and understanding that? Uh, and what you find in her writings about that is just amazing because it becomes intensely practical and um, really she says it will promote putting these together will promote true heart piety like nothing else can so you want to give heart piety to church members to your children learn how to wrap these together look for the stories in the bible that do that particularly john 8 jumps out at me when jesus talks to the woman what he says in his words present to her a gift of two things the law and the gospel and it, it reclaims her from despair and, and sets her feet on the right direction. Um, unfortunately, the other men who also needed it had left, right? But he, he, in order to help her at that point, he had to get rid of the other men who were just accusers at that point. Um, the accusing work is not the work of Christ, right? So that's the picture there. And these three men, particularly we highlight because they seem to run with that message. They were involved with giving it. She specifies them as involved with it. And um, you, you'll find some books by these men that we are, we've been publishing too to try to highlight what, they, what their perspectives were on it. But I, I think of Ellen White's statement, we, you will find perfection in no man's investigations of the truth. So don't read any of these people expecting to find a perfect explanation of it. But then she says, but I know churches are dying for the want of understanding justification by faith and kindred truths. So don't be afraid to study it. In fact, do study it. And, but always go back to the Bible and to the spirit of prophecy in your final understandings of it. Um, Jones is involved with fighting a national Sunday law. That same year, 1888, by the way, I wanted to highlight, too, before I leave 88, back on pages 22 and 23, uh, I attempted to highlight an overview of the Advent movement based on these messages, and one of them in particular talks about it in light of the 1888 message. So you might want to just look over those tables at some point there. 88 was when Farnsworth died. 89, J.H. Wagner dies. 1890, Loughborough was needed to build faith in the rise and progress of the Advent message. And uh, unsettled state of unbelief in the light that God had given. As Ellen White took her stand with the messengers at Minneapolis, there were others of these pioneers that began to question her in her very ministry. And that's what she means, unbelief in the light that God has given. She's talking about the light given through her ministry. And she's, she's realizing Loughborough has never wavered in understanding the role of her ministry. And he needed to be free to tell uh, his experience in the rising progress. And that begins to build the validity of his witnesses, we're going to see. Um, November of 90, statement as to what makes us what we are, said the Adventists. And I find this a recurring theme over and over and over again. 
the things that make us what we are. And I collected those. You'll find them on my website. 20-year span of statements on Seventh-day Adventist identity. Um, all the things that she's describing, which is just her ways of describing what we're summarizing here in our overview. That no, December of that year, um, an article, Be Zealous and Repent, where does that phrase come from? Laodicean message. In that, she says, one interest will prevail, one subject will swallow up every other. Christ or righteousness. Um, there's the theme. Okay? And when you swallow up something, what happens to it? Is it gone? You digest it, and the essential elements become part of you. What is not essential, you get rid of. So if you're struggling with an issue in your church or your family, let Christ, our righteousness, swallow it up, and then you'll be able to understand how to handle it. You'll know what's essential in it and what's not essential. I'm convinced everything we're struggling with, we need to come to the practicality of what this is actually talking about. Um, 1891. There's a resolution to invite Ellen White to visit Australia at the 1891 GC session. And how long does she stay there? She doesn't visit Australia. She moves there. She's there till 1900. She thought she was going to die there. She didn't think she'd ever come back to the States. And she wrote during that visit, quote, why she was invited to go there. But again, this is the unbelief that we're seeing building in the 1890s. 1890s, I'm going to submit to you, is the decade of the best and the worst in Adventism. The opportunities that were there are unimaginable. Can you, we can't imagine what this is going to be like. What, what's going to happen when this really is enabled to, to be proclaimed? But we can't imagine what the consequences of is of not experiencing this. Although we don't know the history of Battle Creek as we ought from the 1890s. We do know the history of the world the last hundred years. And I would submit the history of the world the last hundred years plus is not disconnected from what happened in Battle Creek in the 1890s. Because if Christ could have come, what would have happened to the last hundred years? Wouldn't have happened. World War after World War, Holocaust after Holocaust. If we see things the way God sees them, what will our history review do to us? It will lead us to deep, deep repentance. We won't say, Lord, I wasn't there. No, we would say, what did Daniel say in his prayer in Daniel 9, four times? We have sinned. He's confessing the, the complicity of his people in what, where they were in Babylon, right? Um, 92. Possible that Jones and Wagner may be overthrown by the temptations of the enemy. But if they should be, this would not prove that they had no message from God or that the work they had done was all a mistake. But should this happen, how many would take this position and enter into a fatal delusion because they're not under the control of the Spirit of God? This is a letter to Uriah Smith. I would submit to you many, many people are rejecting Jones and Wagner even today because they lost their way. I've heard stories of saying, don't study them, they're dangerous. Look where they ended up. Read this. 
and, and don't enter into that fatal delusion. Um, next month, she writes to Kellogg, Christianity is intensely practical. Again, these are not ideas we're dealing with. I mean, they are ideas, but they're intensely practical. It changes how you do everything, right? So don't forget that. Don't keep it, as she says, in the outer court, the truth. Um, I reviewed that phrase, how she uses it, if you want to look at that too. The next month, November, the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ. How much clearer can you be? Uh, sin parting Savior. This is the beginning of the light. Not the end of it, but it's the beginning of it, right? It's going to build if, if, if it is allowed to. If you continue to embrace the Laodicean message and learn what you need, uh, your need of Jesus. The next day after that article was published, a letter, the truth, this is a letter to the GC president, the truth, and that's the precious golden links of truth, with Christ as the living center, I noticed at the bottom there, the truth the past few years is immense in its importance, reaching into heaven and encompassing eternity. Satan has made every effort to do what? Cover up, confuse minds to make of none effect. This truth. This is the battle of the 1890s. I mean, talk about these two principles battling it out. And it's all centered there in Battle Creek, even though Ellen White's having to write from way over there in Australia these letters to Battle Creek. December. This is that letter that I talked about. We have nothing to fear for the future. How they were led to adopt the importance of organization. And I... I've given you a background for that on a, a document if you want to look at that. 1892, also Cottrell dies, and Loughborough's first book is published, The Rise and Progress of Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, when we republished his latest edition in 1992, we did not realize that it was the centennial of this edition. We, we could have made something of that if, had we realized that, but now it's there. 93. Um, I'm not going to read that first paragraph or two, but basically here's what she says. If you are suspicious of your brethren, the things you, you think they might be wrong in, you may contribute to their being wrong in that by your suspicion. Be careful how you distrust your brothers. <laughs> Where does faith lead? You know, <laughs> Faith actually helps people to avoid going the wrong direction. If you distrust them, thinking they're going to head that direction, you may actually push them down that road because they need your they need your trust to hold them in the straight and narrow. So we need faith uh, on that horizontal level as well as the vertical, right? Cornell dies that year. Dr. Kellogg gives a series of lectures on medical missionary work at the 93 GC session. Uh, the G 93 GC session is an amazing session. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it is... Um, something that we really need to nuance. He talks about how Isaiah 58, Kellogg does, outlines our mission, and how the loud cry would look in practical expression, but he's confused as to what begins the loud cry. He says the loud cry will not begin until we do medical missionary work. But what did Ellen White publish the previous November? The loud cry had already begun in the message of Christ's righteousness. It doesn't begin with what we do. It begins with what he's done. It begins with the story of the great medical missionary who died 2,000 years ago and gave us the model. It will not go, the loud cry will not go until we embrace it and run with it. But if you say it doesn't begin until we do something, that's turning the gospel on its head. 
And I believe that was his fatal flaw. Um, you see what happens to him in the 1890s. <clears throat> what he does with the medical missionary work. We'll find that later in the outline. Well, <clears throat> excuse me, we should be at the end of chapter, uh, page 10, but we're not there. But our time's up for less, uh, lesson number, section number two. So we're going to have to really fasten our seatbelts this afternoon to finish what we want to. And maybe not touch on all of the things like we're doing, but are you tracking with me? Do you want to save some time at the end for questions and answers, or do you want to just cover as much as we can? Think about it between now and this afternoon. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for the chance to continue to review our history. May we sense indeed your, your footprints in our history, your fingerprints. You were there. And in spite of the problems and failures and the fact that we're still here, it seems clear that you still value that history and want us to learn the lessons from it that we need. Guide us as we continue to grow in our understanding of the details, particularly the practical aspects as to how it applies to us. May we be led to repentance um, that Jesus speaks about in the latest scene message. <clears throat> we want to be zealous and repent. We want to learn what you want us to learn, even from the mistakes of our ancestors, and to turn from those, those erroneous errors of erroneous ways of dealing with, with the message, with you and with one another, and to learn how to not repeat those mistakes. Give us your spirit. What are we without him? Teach us that in Christ's name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.